Welcome, welcome to the Mocha Live podcast. And today we have a knockout of a conversation. It's me, it's programming director of Mocha, Julian Brangold, and we are talking about museums. Little known fact, Mocha stands for the Museum of Crypto Art. And while we do all sorts of things that are reasonably alien to your garden variety museum, podcasting among them, at the very core of our being is this question of, well, what is a museum in the digital age? When all the assets a museum hopes to preserve are digitally native or locked into the blockchain or even just cultural sentiments themselves, well, how does the museum itself need to contort so as to continue to be the things that a museum needs to be? A thought leader, a preserver of culture and an incubator of culture, a place for communities of like-minded people to gather. My job at MoCA has been to figure out ways to do that through writing, through podcasting, through interviewing, and it's a question on our mutual minds every day. Julian and I really get nitty gritty about what a museum wants to be and what our museum wants to be. These are questions we definitely don't answer in the short time we have together today, but rest assured it's a conversation that we keep having and that keeps expanding all the time. So please come with us and jump into the conversation yourself on this week's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 6.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in sunny, too hot Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art and coming at you from the complete other side of the world. Uh, we have the programming director of the museum, Mr. Julian Brangle. Julian, how are you? I'm good, man. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's super good to have you. I always love talking with you on the camera, off the camera. Um, we have a cool topic today. Uh, I'm excited to get your opinion on all this stuff about the museum. And that's what we want to talk about this week is not just our museum or the museum that we are a part of, but uh, museums in general in the 21st century. Um, and in many ways, this conversation is about you know, MoCA itself and MoCA's history, and its value system. Because to me, the central question of MoCA's entire existence is what is a museum meant to be in the digital world, you know, when divorced from geographic location, when it's always open by nature, because there is no physical place to enter that needs to be locked and when existing primarily in the digital sphere. So my first question to you is what is a museum meant to be when it's divorced from all of the physical limitations or rather what can a museum be when it's divorced from all the limitations that having a physical location, having physical artifacts requiring entry fees and such, how does that manifest? What does that look like? For me, it's a very interesting topic and it's a huge one as well. Cause um, so huge in the, in the, in the sense of there's a lot of different avenues and like, you know, threads that you can go on um, when thinking about something like that. Because one of the things that drew me the most about this project that we're both part of, the Museum of Crypto Art, is actually the potentiality to kind of like dialogue against like what exists now, what a museum is now, how we understand it. Um, I think there's a million things that we can talk about when speaking about like what an, a museum that doesn't adhere to the traditional rules looks like. I think that one of the most important things that a museum does is, is shape culture. I, I found it interesting because one of your notes was about 
museums as thought leaders. And I feel like in a way, museums shouldn't really be thought leaders. I see a museum more like a mirror of its time, like trying to be the grounds on which cultural activity forms on top of, um, more than the creator of a certain line of thought or a certain um, way of seeing culture. So neutrality for me in museums is really important, cultural institutions that have kind of like the responsibility to bring the cultural activity out into the public. Um, I feel like it's interesting to think how museums really started or how like what a museum is in its foundation is these like big collections of arts from these patrons like way, way back needed like a place to exist and someone to take care of them. Um, and so first museums were really private collections that had this like physical space that were taking up all this like physical space and had like someone, you know, deciding what to display, what to, what to show, what to put in storage. And like that slowly started being open to the public because it was like this good that people had that was like indoors. Um, and then from that derives museums, which is like, it's not that the museum produces culture, it's the museum displays and preserves culture. You know, the first museum I ever went to, and I'm not sure if you visited it, but, and the one I probably have the fondest memories of is the Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, I have these vivid memories of walking into their, like, they have an underwater room and they have this giant, uh, I don't know if it's plaster or paper mache, but it's this giant blue whale hang, scale hanging from the ceiling. And the scale of that and the grandiosity I still I find myself thinking about it, but that museum was really meaningful to me, but it's also incredibly outdated. Uh, there's no, the exhibits are all kind of like scenes in motion throughout, you know, American history, but it's a lot of taxidermied animals and wax or molded figures of people in era appropriate garb. It is, uh, it's kind of like a relic by its nature. It's really quite interesting. Uh, I'm wondering in your life, is there a, been museums physical museums that you have visited maybe as a child or maybe as an adult that have had a really powerful impact on you not just from what you were looking at but the way that the museum itself was kind of structured set up how you move through it yeah i mean i would say when i was a kid i used to like to go to museo de bellas artes the museum of fine arts here in buenos aires um but it's quite a traditional building it's like an old building um, not old, but like antique, actual, like really, really old building that's that's very beautiful. Um, but it has like, you know, wooden floors, um, regular walls. It didn't have any like device to sort of speak um, about the culture inside. It was more like just this, this grandiose, beautiful old building. Ionic um, columns and things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, really, really old staircases. I remember those things as, as being really impactful, but but it wasn't really thought of as a device to like dialogue with the with the art in there. It was more like the space that I don't know, maybe the city got like managed to get its hands on or something like that. But um, I can say the first like experience, um, and this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna sound really bad, but the first experience I had with like feeling the impact of a really like architecturally 
interesting and strong in its message museum was um, the Tate Modern um, in, in London. I haven't been. Yeah, that's a crazy, crazy space. Well, tell me more about it. What, what, what's so crazy about it? I mean, obviously, it's an art museum, and I have certain ideas about art museums that I've been to. I'd like to talk, touch on those in a moment, but what is it about the Tate Modern specifically? Is it the architecture? Is it the atmosphere? Is it the... Yeah, the first thing that, that impacted me as an Argentinian from the south of the world just coming for the first time to Europe was like the scale. Like merely the amount of works they had was, was very like, wow. It just kept going and going and going. And it was very, very impactful in that way. Like for me, it was, I couldn't believe that something like that even could exist. And then in that scale also, like it sounds trivial, but the, 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 the height of the ceilings, it was like they could, they could have like four meter high artworks, like paintings hanging off walls. And just the scale, because you also need like the space to walk back and be able to see like that huge thing. It, it allowed for interactions with the artwork that I hadn't seen before. Definitely. Um, so yeah, there, there's a big factor in like uh, the economic possibilities of, of a institution and what they can, you know, the way they can display. It, it also like kind of, it was the first time I, I was seeing um, art artwork from artists that I followed all my life and I couldn't have access to because we didn't really, we, we have like a few international artists in like Argentina's you know roster of museums but this was like so many works from so many artists that I grew up like just admiring and suddenly having them in front of me was like very very impactful. Well you touched on a couple things that I want to dwell on for a second and these are I think facets of the IRL museum at its you know potential theoretical apex right and one is that sense of scope and that sense of awe because we both basically just said the same thing right when you went to tate you saw these pieces they were huge and there was a sense of being like overcome with them and i had kind of had that same thing with the blue whale at the natural history museum and there is something about you know your classic art museum right take you know moma for example or i'm sure the tate and and i don't want to speak for a museum i haven't been to but at least moma right it's white walled it's brightly lit security everywhere all the artworks kind of have their own space to breathe in these little boxes away from each other. There's a, a certain reverence to the whole place, right? The same way like a cathedral um, and a church can be extremely kind of overwhelming places visually um, in terms of the stimulus there, even just by the quiet and what that quiet communicates. And then the other thing I want to touch on is the interactivity. Um, you know, in an art museum, it's more theoretical, but um I don't know if you've ever been to like a science museum, but uh, there's a great one in uh, Jersey city, New Jersey called the Liberty science center. And it's like a kid's science museum. Always loved it growing up because everything there was designed to be touched and played with and moved in and out. And it was these wonderful exhibitions of the human body, but you were, you know, a tiny kid moving in and out of like the capillaries and veins and systems and things. And you really got no pun intended, like inside the exhibitions. And that was a really, really powerful experience, but now that we've moved, I, th I think once we've talked about kind of the physical museum space and having those kind of possible attributes at its apex, I think it's time we turn our attention to the digital sphere because obviously those things are impossible. The nature of a museum like MoCA existing online is even if our collection in terms of the notoriety of the pieces or in terms of the price tag of the pieces, even if that's overwhelming, 
the reality is that you can only experience them with the grandiosity of the screen that you are bringing to the experience, right? Maybe that's not so different than a physical museum where your openness to the material is going to lend it a certain reverence. But on my you know, 15-inch MacBook screen, that's as big as I can get these artworks. Um, and that's just the reality of the situation. And that's going to change depending on whether you are looking on your phone or looking on you know, a, a projector. But the impact of the museum to an extent on a visual level is impacted by what the patron is bringing to it. How do you think that affects the experience for people who are moving through the actual museum space itself, right? Through the permanent Dain Elyad and uh, Genesis collections and community collection as well. I feel like there's a lot of ground to explore in terms of, of exhibiting online. Um, there's two main factors that I feel like still need a lot of development and we're in the super early stages of, and we are thinking about these things and I think they're super relevant. One is creating digital virtual experiences within the small screen. Um, first of all, that idea of like creating the virtual experience in a way that works with all the tools for, from the virtual space. Um, so what we've seen so far is these virtual environment that pretty much emulates the real world and have these buildings inside. And then there's these JPEGs that are like hung on these walls. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of road to explore um, when you have the infinity of the digital at, at your fingertips. So I feel like there's a lot to be explored in that sense. Like the actual experience, even though it's experienced through a small screen, can be so much more, so much more engaging, so much more challenging and weird and interesting. And this is one of the things that I'm like, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to push within the museum is within the, within MoCA is, is how do we use the digital world in a way that creates these experiences that, that also empowers the artwork that it has contained within it. Um, that, that's, that's number one. And I feel like we are very aware of that and we are working towards like going to a place um, that uses more of that and creates more like strange, challenging, interesting experiences that empower the artworks, the digital, the natively digital artworks that we want to display. And then the other thing is... Hold on, real quick. I want to dwell on that because I think that's a really important point, right? Is having the ability to be changeling about the situation in which the artworks are in, right? And the ability to be responsive and reactive as a museum, which is not possible with the limitations in a physical place because you physically need to move objects around. You physically need to invite certain people in, right? And I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking about the kinds of um, exhibitions that you're uh, putting together and that you have put together. And I'm also thinking about something that Untitled XYZ has said where he kind of decries the skeuomorphic nature of a lot of metaverse architecture that it has these it has bathrooms it has doors it has windows it has ceilings which is ridiculous in the digital sphere because it's addressing problems that while we recognize in the real world are not present in this secondary world and i, I, I want to know from your perspective like how can you make a museum exhibition that is reactionary to the people visiting it to the artwork that's populating it, can you do something like that in, say, real time, based on who's around and what they want? 
Yeah, I mean, all of that is very possible. It's just a matter of, of resources and using, you know, the tools in a smart and, and creative way. And for me, one of the ways that you do that is you bring artists to think about these things. Because we have artists creating artworks, that's great. And they have these ways of seeing technology that, you know, goes beyond what they're meant to be used for, what, what like devices and technologies are meant to be used for. And I feel like that, that same like boundary breaking can be brought to virtual experiences. So definitely, I think that there's a lot of ways. I think we're going to look at like the gaming industry, for example, how within your tiny screen, they, they take you on this like incredible adventure that you go on for, I don't know, six days for hours a day. And it's crazy. It's like, if it's like a storyline, whatever, like it could, it could take months to, to finish an actual game. And it's, incredible like you go into these universes you travel you you have these like real life um emulating adventures it feels real like your mind is there you're having those experiences same with like film right like going to see movies but but we're talking about the, the virtual here but video games do that video games use the limitations of the screen but to their favor um by exploiting and using whatever they have available within the digital and 3D technology and you know those things. So I think it's very, very possible. It's just a matter of putting that part of the exhibition device into the hands of artists that also want to break shit and want to do things that are weird and that don't look familiar and that challenge what we preconceive as a virtual exhibition. I find myself thinking of, and I'm not trying to like decry museums in general, but I, I find myself thinking of a constant in the museums that I've been around in my life, which is this like museum after dark kind of, I don't know, event ideology where there's this idea that if you simply introduce like a small table that has some beer and wine for sale on it, it changes the fundamental experience of going to the museum, which is, I, I think, a step in the direction of what I'm talking about. But it does seem like in a digital landscape, right? Where everything can be hair trigger and reactionary, especially as the technology gets better. You know, we've been theorizing this at the museum for quite a while with the, the virtual curator, um, this AI kind of a assistant of sorts that would follow you around the museum and answer your questions and kind of point things out to you based on what you've asked it in the past, uh, a work in development, but a theoretically individualized museum experience, which could only exist in a digital realm because only the resources that can touch everybody exist in this realm. I want to move on from like the physical idea of the museum to what we were kind of touching on before and what you had brought up, which is the museum is a thought leader, uh, which you push back against fairly. Uh, but I'd like to push back against your pushback um, because I think that the nature of the museum, while it is in some ways a mirror to a historical epoch or uh, current events or whatever is going on, it's still a perspective on that thing, right? Every museum, every, the Whitney Art Museum in New York, for example, is one collector's, one collection's kind of evocation of their collecting ethos, right? So even though it's art history of a period in a kind of objective sense, it is really one person's eye as it relates to that period, how that eye saw the world. And that itself is leading the thought because it's introducing one person's taste and with enough institutional stability and institutional gravitas that is naturally going to change how people look at the thing thereafter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, well, that's where I find our project interesting is that when you bring, because 
I am all for curation, and I think curators have a really, really important role in stewarding art. And I think that institutions also have a very important role in stewarding art as well. But when you have one person deciding on that profile or like ideological, you know, pathway, there's a lot of like loss there because there's a myriad of perspectives that maybe you're overlooking, not taking into account, or even trying to push against. And I feel like museums, as, as like cultural, culturally forming structures, have a responsibility to like be as open as they can and be as like diverse and, and, and ideologically, you know, multiple as they can. So that's why I find, and this is something I wrote in my, in my essay on, on, you know, decentralizing or, or moving towards decentralizing the programmatic decisions of the museum is I feel like if you still, you know, use the tools that, that curators can, can, can provide and that the structure of an institution can provide, but start to open the game for people to participate in the decision-making process so as to keep this like ideological and um, bias compass not always pointing to the same direction or not like overlooking certain things or certain um, cultures or certain ideologies, I feel like there's a lot of potential there. Because the, the, what I see as a problem in, in traditional institutions is like, for example, now with, <clears throat> with the political climate we have in the world, um, where everything's very, you know, sensible and, and everything's very touchy and it's hard to like step on certain ground, which I think is very detrimental for art because art is the space where like everything gets fucked up. We can see everything break. We can see all the problems arise. We can see all the sensibilities, you know, affected. So we can then start shaping our culture in a way that understands those problems. If you limit the possibilities of art, then you're, you're going to see the art, you know, increasingly getting incredibly mid and just like safe, which is super boring and super bad for culture. So when you have a curator that's just one person making these decisions and all this like ideological and, you know, um, ethical baggage falls on this one person, even if they want to, they might step into some hurdles in making these decisions. But it's also, it's always going to be a kind of tug of war, right? And I don't mean to sound, again, denigrating, but I remember when I first came onto the museum and we were looking at the community collection, it was filled with PFP projects. There were apes in there and there were, um, what are they called? Mooncats in there. There were all sorts of like just weird mid now dead PFP projects, but that was what was filling the coffers of the community collection. Whereas you had this Genesis and permanent collection that was a lot more thoughtfully organized. It had a certain ideology to it. It was imbued with the taste of Colborn and Shivani and Renee who had donated a bulk of the pieces and Manta and, you know, our, 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 not autonomous artifact, like the people who contributed to the museum had an idea for what they wanted that museum to look like. And there is a taste in that taste is important. The, community itself should have a say in how the museum is structured and what the museum is trying to say. But I think that there is also a danger in kind of giving the keys to the tastemaking to the public, because that's basically what Twitter is, right? We see it when people are left en masse to their own devices to 
engage with each other without kind of set structures or a set goal, people kind of go off the rails. They become very possessive and hair trigger. And I'm not sure a museum's role is to reflect the minute cultural shifts every moment. I think that that's something that the museum, the MOCA does incredibly well is it has this collection of tasteful and taste forward artworks that have been designed in a certain collection with a certain ethos. And then adjacent to that permanent and Genesis collection is this community collection, which is a lot more kind of momentary and just displays the whims of whoever is kind of activating pieces through their multi-pass. And I think that that's one of the things I find most interesting about uh, the integration with Filecoin, which backs up not just the NFTs that are in the museum, but also the NFTs that are in a museum, in the museum at any given time, is that we will be able, and I've written about this, we'll be able to go back and see on a moment-to-moment basis, on a day-by-day basis, see how tastes change, see how the what the glut of NFTs that existed in the world were, how people were interacting with the museum. It seems strange to me in hindsight that for a portion of the museum's existence, the people who were interacting with the museum would have been interested in activating PFP project into it because that's so kind of not our ethos. And it makes me wonder, not in a negative way, but just makes me wonder what the kinds of quality of those people were as they saw the museum. What did they see the museum trying to do versus now where there's a lot more focus, I think, from the people who are activating NFTs from all of us to push forward things that are, as um, Daim likes to say, that um, identify themselves as art. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And I completely agree with you. I don't think that the way to go is to just like open the, the doors and, and let all everyone's like, you know, whims and, and expectations just flood in and make decisions for the museum. So yeah, there has to be a, a hybrid system that um, incorporates curators that have their own views. Because also people, just like viewers, appreciators of art, they don't have the time to spend you know hours and hours every day just studying what's going on with art what art can be all the potentialities all the stories of the artists all the history that comes behind it like they just don't have time so it would it wouldn't be um it wouldn't be cautious to but this is i think what i what i was saying before about being a thought leader i think i mentioned this a week or two ago but i look at movie reviews from critics i trust so that i can know not only what to think about a movie that I'm going to go see, but also to help recontextualize it after the fact with a perspective I didn't realize. People look to the institutions to do that thinking for them that they don't want to do, don't have the uh, time to do, don't have the education to do, don't feel they have the education to do because obviously everybody has the sensibility to make determinations about art. But you, that is kind of our role here, I think, as a museum, especially in the digital sphere where a lot of the grandiosity of a museum is communicated by these secondary factors. You know, you walk into a Tate Modern or a Museum of Natural History or any of these museums, there is a legitimacy conferred on the physical institution by the size, by the scope, by the physical masonry that put the thing together. With a digital museum, it's a lot more difficult. We kind of have to prove our reputation correct we kind of have to prove our worth we have to prove our expertise because that's the masonry upon which we're built and i i think that you can't do that without kind of positing yourself as a thought leader of course you can cross cross over into the dark side and become 
inward looking and I think uh, confrontational and hostile to other viewpoints, but we don't want to do that. And I think we collectively as an institution try our best not to do that. And even that in a way is thought leading. Yeah, but I feel like we have this advantage that we're very nimble. So we can like adapt and form partnerships and form strategic, you know, alliances with different entities. And that's one of the big problems of traditional institutions today is they're very big, they're very slow, they're very, you know, bureaucratic. They take a very long time to make every decision. We can be very fast and like say, okay, um, when I say hybrid system, I mean, like, for example, we propose topics and people choose these topics. And then we have someone else propose topics, but it's just one person that's very, it's an expert on like a certain area in the world. And then they propose topics. And we can start like very quickly, very, very fast, very swiftly forming these alliances that feed into like the basis that we can provide for people to then like go into this playground of options and play and choose and see what they want to see. And, 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 and we can even have the community decide who will come on next, but they have to choose from a list of 10 experts, right? So it's this hybridity where we provide the grounds. We are the ones that are spending every day thinking about digital art, crypto art, like this, this, this world. Um, we spend time making these connections with artists, with curators, like we know what's going on in, on the inside, which people don't even need to know. They, they, most people don't even care and that's fine. Um, so we provide that. We provide like the structure of a, of a cultural institution. But then when it comes to the final decision making of like which areas of the world, which kinds of artists, which topics, then that's where we give the community a, a, a slow, you know, way in, right? Where we say, okay, we have all these ideas. Um, this is what we thought. We, this is what we came up with. From all these things, what would you like to see? Um, ideally, it would be amazing to have the community just, you know, create their own museum with all these Web3 tools that we have. Um, but I feel like there's a long way from where we are now to that. And in that, like, very, very long transition, which could, which could take years, um, we can still be this, like, basis, this, this, this foundational structure that provides all the knowledge, all the tools, right? All the bridges that bring the audience closer to the art um, it doesn't have to be that we just like yeah it, it sounds like what you're describing is like the museum is kind of a scaffolding device right that people can then use to scale whatever the material is but it's also our job to communicate why this material why the whatever subject matter we're putting forth why it's important right because i don't think it's fair to the community of a museum itself to that everybody takes it on faith that what we say is important. It's part of our ethos, not only to identify what we think is important, but justify why it's important. And that kind of leads me into my next point, which is the museum as like community organizer. I think that museums don't do a great job of this in the physical world, but they at least do some kind of a job of this, of bringing people into one space to interact with an artistic narrative. You know, we see that in art museums with um, exhibitions that are put up like temporary exhibitions, which I think invites people to interact with something new, something emergent, something different, but kind of in a, it brings interested people into the same physical location. I think where they fail is that those people don't really come in contact with each other. They're really only coming into contact with the museum itself while in proximity to each other. I think a digital museum like MoCA 
by the nature of our kind of social interaction, this web of tools, this web of social media profiles, these different ways that people in the museum are interacting constantly with people outside of the museum, I imagine in a much more holistic and free flowing way than maybe like the directors of a museum of contemporary art somewhere would be doing with their constituents. So I'm wondering how you think with the digital tools available to us, how you think a museum can best position itself to be a kind of nexus for the community around it? Um, I think there's a lot to explore in the realm of like interactivity and how the tools that we have are all available to the same people in the same way at the same time. Um, whereas when people go to a physical museum, everyone goes in their own time they go in, they go out, they don't stay there, they don't linger, they don't interact too much. They just like go observe and then leave. Um, whereas we have all these tools that we can use for people to engage in longer processes that take longer than just like one day visit in and out. Um, I mean, some traditional museums do this with like clubs, um, reading groups, uh, workshops, and that's very cool. Um, so I think we could like somehow empower those kinds of spaces that are more interactive where people can come and, and processes are longer. Um, but using these tools that we have with voting, with Discord, with live streaming, with virtual environments, um, there's a lot to be explored there. It's also like a matter of like inbound versus outbound marketing. Like it's great that a museum is hosting a reading club, but if you don't physically know about it because you either don't belong to the museum or you haven't seen their communications, you're kind of screwed. What we have the benefit of is of kind of being consistently and omnipresently flowing through the community with our communications into and out of inboxes, into and out of perspectives. So it gives the digital institution a huge leg up because their existence is within this sphere, this like flat social media sphere interwoven with the community. And also like the dynamics go on in the same platform, in the same space, which is the virtual space. Um, there's, there's a lot to be, you know, explored there. And I'm pretty excited about like the things that we can do and, and that we can, you know, play with. Um, but I do feel like it's very important and we have this benefit that we can incorporate artists within this dynamic artists that are producing the works that we display that we that we you know um, take care of that we empower they can be a part of the creation of these new dynamics that bring the people together and that the people that are you know roaming around kind of interested in art get more engaged um, with these you know new ways of interacting I definitely love the idea of a museum that is its own social network in a way. Things, things, things like that could be really, really, really interesting to see. I think one of the things we do well as a museum is integrating ourselves into the social network, into the social fabric in a way that traditional museums don't. I think that what was the, the Museum of Contemporary Art um, that you mentioned in Buenos Aires with the, the big... The Fine Arts Museum. The Fine Arts Museum, I'm sorry. With the columns and this kind of grandiosity that sets it apart from the other architecture in the area. I think that that's kind of part of the course for a physical museum. It kind of wants to be separate from its environment because it wants to stand out as a bastion of something different than what is being preserved by the world around it. I think the museum does a great job in its communications. And a lot of this is Colborn and his kind of 
ingrained and a lot of it to you as well with out of the way you guys can just talk about the internet and the language of the internet which i sure as shit can't do but it's meeting the art movement on its own level instead of trying to i think raise it up i think a lot of what like sotheby's and christie's do wrong is they try and lend undue importance to things that are by their very nature like kind of fleeting and unimportant not any specific artist but Part of this movement is its exuberance, is its ridiculousness, is its irreverence, um, is its, you know, I'm thinking of like spam art and trash art specifically, which are always on my mind, but they are a reaction to taking itself seriously. And I, I think of like, you know, Duchamp and like that work, which was also a reaction to people taking it too seriously. And then what did museums and institutions do? They came in, they put it on a pedestal and they treated it way more seriously than it wanted to, which is almost like a fuck you to the nature of the art itself. And I don't know. I, I appreciate the way that we try to, again, not elevate and not denigrate the art, but kind of meet it where it is, uh, which is a spectrum of places, which is only possible when you don't, again, have like a physical design that you have to adhere to because you have your building with the ionic columns and with the marble and everything. Um, I'm curious on a slightly different note. Do you think that physical museums and art museums specifically are doing enough to kind of pivot into the 21st century. So I'm thinking of like Pompidou and LACMA and MoMA have been addressing this problem of emergent art by buying digital art, buying some crypto art, but that seems like a bandaid as opposed to a coherent solution for, I don't know, them kind of aging out of relevance or potentially aging out of relevance. What do you think? Do you think, um, this is going to evolve in a way in which these museums are kind of stubbornly refuse to pivot or kind of pivot in only the most shallow of ways. Or do you think that there's going to be a real groundswell of incorporation of social media, internet, digital ideals into these, like you said, slower moving cultural institutions? Yeah, I think that museums are really struggling with this. Um, and you can see it in like their numbers. Uh, it's, it's really hard to engage with audiences, like especially younger audiences today with, with like the speed of TikTok and Instagram and, and all that. It's, it's really hard to get people interested in these like behemoths of culture that are these like huge buildings. And, and especially when, when all these decisions are very bureaucratic and then you have to hire this like marketing team and they have to talk to the board and everything has to be approved by the museum donors. And these kind of like old, old school dynamics make it all very, very hard for museums to adapt fast enough because a lot of museums are trying. Some of them are succeeding in doing like interesting stuff. Um, but most are struggling a lot with their like online communications, with engaging with younger audiences that are terminally online. Um, I feel like I don't really have an answer whether they're, they're, they will be able um, to do it eventually. Um, I do think that most museums will have to find a space online, a space in, in the virtual space, their own like place in the virtual space that's, that has as good a quality of content and 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 culture production as their physical spaces and that's very very hard for them to do um this is why i was saying that for me i like it that we are nimble we can adapt we respond to what's going on online today which is like we spend most of our lives online or or at least like half of our lives online 
Um, so I find it very <clears throat> hard to answer whether they will be able to do it or not, but I feel like I can see them struggling. Um, this is this is one thing. And then the other thing is like showing emerging more underground art um, against like uh, established art, like institutional art. Like for, for a traditional artist, there's no bigger a recognition that being like displayed in a museum because that's where you like have been you have the stamp of approval from this like you know high high art institution and that makes it so that there's a lot of really interesting arts like emerging changing rapidly producing art which also has a very big leg of, of it in in the digital space and in virtual spaces um, they lose that. They just, they don't, um, they're not able to keep up with that pace, with that rhythm of production, with the change of culture. Like whatever internet art looked like six months ago is not the same as what it looks like today, like natively. Yeah, and internet art art is also incredibly niche. All of internet culture is is niche, right? It's it's these collections of very specific niches that we ourselves belong to. And a museum that is consistently displaying just their kind of form of taste is just limiting the amount of people that it can appeal to because pe- less and less people are going to see themselves and their interests represented in this thing, right? We Even if the all of society has a penchant for Renaissance art, as the internet develops and as these you can more specifically be seen by these smaller communities who really get you. Um, I remember you writing about like the GTA mod community. Um, Yeah. Right. Like that's such a small niche sector of the internet, but it really gets you. Why would you want to sacrifice some of that being seen for the sake of having to physically elevate yourself to reach a new plane where you might be uncomfortable with, where this museum sits, where it's showing you something that you might somewhat align with, but which you don't totally align with when, especially in a digital sphere, like you can manifest these incredibly specific tunnels for specific people. I think that AI is going to change that dramatically, right? Even within the museum itself in five years, who knows how easily we'll be able to integrate AI into everything. You know, the way people are seeing the pieces in our collection will be different. The way that they are, experiencing them and what flow and with what information presented to them. You know, I really like context in my artwork. I like to read. Um, When I'm at a museum, I take a look at the artwork and then I kind of always read the blurb next to it. So I wonder if there, I I wonder if we just simply might not have the tools yet to fully meet the demands of what an internet museum could potentially look like. We'll, we'll, We'll keep adapting, right? Like we, we keep um, incorporating these things. And that's the cool thing is that we can use these tools and make them a part of the institution, a part of the dynamics within the institution very quickly. Um, We can keep up and that's very exciting. And we can do it like that. Exactly. Julian, this is a dense, deep topic and I'd love to have you back on to explore it more because we only very scratched the surface of what I think Mocha wants to do, what we have been doing, what it's possible for us to do. Um, so let's get you back and let's do this again. All right. I'd love to. Yeah. I agree that this is a huge topic and there's so many things we can talk about and I'm super happy to like do this again whenever you, whenever you have a slot for me. We got to form like a coalition of, of museums and uh, 
actually get this stuff sorted out because I'm not sure 45 minutes on a podcast alone, <laughs> you and I are going to uh, sort everything into boxes, but we'll try. Any uh, any last words for the people? Anything you want to uh, tell them about? No, if you're listening, come check out what we're doing. We are constantly thinking about these things. We're trying to do our best to you know, make things interesting and engaging and weird and challenging and different so yeah i'll encourage everyone listening to come and check out the stuff we're doing and keep an eye out in the next couple of uh days weeks because we got some exciting stuff to reveal related to our mocha fundraiser um keep your eyes peeled because uh this is a really exciting project and if the topic is keeping y'all engaged and, and getting you kind of invested in the museum itself i think we've taken absolutely uh, enormous strides together with what we have planned for this fundraiser. So please uh, keep abreast of all of our communications. Uh, feel free to subscribe to us on Substack. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that's all we got. Let's get out of here. Julian, say goodbye to the people. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Max, for inviting me. And yeah, just have me. Absolutely. You can have me on again whenever you, you want. I'm super happy to be a part of it. Is that a threat or a promise? <laughs> Both. All right, we'll, we'll be back here next week, 5 p.m. EST or around then. Uh, same bad time, same bad channel. Please don't touch that dial, and uh, we'll see you all real soon. Bye-bye. Peace. This podcast was produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured intro music by Day Fox, as well as theme music by Julian Brangold.